0: Welcome to yet another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host,
1: Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Chris Stroud, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics and always from an authentically Catholic perspective. Now, Dr. Doctor is brought to you in part by the generous underwriting of CMF Curo. Learn more at mycatholichealthcare.org. Live your Catholic faith in your health care with CMF Curo.
0: Once again, our episode will now be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Joining us for the second week in a row will be Carter Sneed, a lawyer and director of the De Nicolas Center for Ethics and Culture, who is also professor of law at the University of Notre Dame in South Bend, Indiana.
1: Regular listeners will note this is the second part of a two-part series In which Carter talks about the key ideas in his book, What It Means to Be Human, The Case for the Body in Public Bioethics, published by Harvard University Press.
0: And you can buy it online just about anywhere. I interviewed Carter on July 21st in Napa, California, where we were attending and speaking at the Napa Institute. Last week, Carter's episode talked about expressive individualism, an idea that drives laws related to bioethics in our country. Expressive individualism means that the person's individual freedom to choose is the most important thing about them, regardless of what that choice is or means.
1: He then went on to explain how we need a view of the human person based on our lived experience, that persons are embodied, so to speak. Now, expressive individualism forgets the body and forgets or ignores that we're vulnerable and dependent.
0: In this episode, Carter will talk about an alternative, an embodied anthropology, a view of human persons that accounts for the fact that we have bodies, as well as wills that choose, and how remembering that could go far to align our laws of public bioethics with the way that we as Catholics understand a human person to be.
1: Carter will specifically apply a view of human persons as having bodies. I know, that's a crazy idea for some. Uh, (laughs) And he'll do it in the realm of laws related to abortion, assisted reproductive technologies like IVF, and end-of-life care.
0: So, Chris, you have a vast experience of women with unwanted pregnancies and, and those on the other end of things, women who are not able to achieve a greatly desired pregnancy. So what do you see? is harmful with the current state of laws regarding abortion and assisted reproductive technology?
1: Yeah, a great, great question indeed. I mean, I am certainly no bioethicist and I don't usually use the term expressive individualism or talk about the human person, but I think it really boils down to the definition of person. So it's really relevant to this topic. So think about it. If we were to stop people on the street and do a man in the street interview generally and Any town in America, I should say most towns in America, and we ask the question, is it acceptable to kill a person that you encounter? Just kill a person that you encounter. I think most people in most towns across America would say absolutely not. That's not okay. Most of us believe that it's somehow intrinsically wrong to just kill a person. Now, there are exceptions, say for self-defense, for example, but that's not what we're talking about. Many are at least Half of the population in America, in America would say it's okay for society to kill a person if that person's guilty of some egregious crime. We're talking about the death penalty there. And we could debate the definition of guilty and the definition of egregious, et cetera, but many of us would say that's okay, but not just killing a person for no reason. But the reality is most people feel it's somehow wrong to take an innocent life. But that's, there's that word again, person or life. So if we could find, I'm sure we could find exceptions, but most of those, most people feel abortion is acceptable. The people that feel that it's acceptable, um, that the procedure, that it does not kill a human person. That's hard to fathom, but I think we have to recognize that, don't you? I think
0: person is something that we've taken for granted as a society for so long, we're kind of shocked that we actually need to bring it out in the open and discuss what a person is. Uh, I love uh, one of uh, Peter Kreeft, one of my favorite authors, saying that if wombs had windows, there would be less abortion.
1: (laughs) But, you know, I, I think we know as a society from our experience that if we can convince ourselves that an entity in front of us is not a human person, then we're capable of really unlimited acts of abject indifference and violence against that entity. We don't have to look really very far. Think about war in general. Think about Nazi concentration camps or the massacres at Darfur, for example. It's all about that definition of a human person. Because the enti- if the entity in front of us is readily identified as a person, most of us would balk at treating that entity with anything less than human respect. Now, I bet a lot of our listeners are too young, but do you remember Hurricane Katrina way back in 2005? I do, Chris. Yeah, (laughs) all over cable news networks, because that's what we called them then. um, There were bodies of dead Americans stacked along the streets in New Orleans. And what was left of civilization there, it decompensated. Because, I believe, we, we fundamentally feel the need to protect a human person, even in death, and having corpses stacked up in the street caused society to break apart. We fundamentally expect some certain level of dignity to be afforded to a human person, even or particularly in death. Uh, funerals, I would argue, are respectful uh, events and they're showing respect to the dead. So, laws affecting and addressing abortion or euthanasia are artificial uh, reproductive technologies, frozen embryos, all of those things need to respect the human person. If we can convince others that they're dealing with the human person, I think it would change the conversation in America and beyond. And that's what Carter's going to talk about is how
0: do we take those first steps toward laws, toward jurisprudence, which recognizes a broader definition, actually our lived experience of who human persons are.
1: And this topic matters, listeners, so it may sound philosophical or academic or heady and such, but listen to our guest. He's remarkable. This is the essence of much of the evil in society today, a disrespect or disregard for the human person. If we can get this right, we can do so much more right in the process.
0: Amen, Chris. And and these laws, they weren't necessarily made with ill intent, but unfortunately, the the presuppositions, the ideas underlying them that weren't discussed lead to this crazy idea that it's not important that we have a body as a human being.
1: Well, we better leave it there. And before we go to our break, let's pose this week's medical trivia question.
0: Well, this one is based on how well you were listening last week, because the answer is in last week's episode. In that episode, Carter talked about some poorly done human research studies poorly done in that they did not respect the human dignity of the research subjects. One of these was the notorious Tuskegee study in Macon County Alabama which was supposed to study the natural history of a certain disease for six months but it was extended for forty years. From 1932 to 1972 600 African-American men were followed with what disease to observe its natural course without treatment, even though in the 1940s, a curative treatment was available. What was this disease that was studied in the Tuskegee study in Macon County, Alabama? You'll have to hang on till the end of the show for the answer, but we'll be back with more Carter Snead here on Dr. Doctor after the break. We're back with round two of Carter Sneed and what it means to be human, the case for the body in public bioethics. Carter is here where we're recording at the Napa Institute in Napa, California. He's a lawyer, a jurist doctor. He's director of the De Nicola Center for Ethics and Culture at the University of Notre Dame, professor of law. He's got a great interest at the intersection of public bioethics and law, and that's why he wrote the book, and we're going to go in today. how. His understanding of expressive individualism, which is in public bioethics, needs to be replaced by uh, a public bioethics that looks at an anthropology of embodiment. Carter, welcome back to Dr. Doctor. Great to be back. So, Carter, to to briefly go through, you, you know, you mentioned in several places in your book that this concept of radical autonomy in expressive individualism fails by forgetting the body. So if the failure is forgetting the body, the solution probably involves remembering the body. What does it mean to remember the body? Yeah, Remembering the
2: body means to take seriously the fact that we are essentially embodied, meaning we are not simply minds that have instrumental bodies that we harness and bend to the projects of our will, but in fact what we are are dynamic unions of body and mind, and our body has essential realities that define who we are in the same way that our mind does. And in fact, of course, they are related. The body affects the mind and vice versa. So to be to take seriously our embodiment is to take seriously the reality of our vulnerability, our mutual dependence, and our subjection to natural limits, and how those realities situate us in, in with respect to one another by building a kind of relationship that we have by virtue of our shared mutual vulnerability, and creating obligations that we have to one another to take care of each other, as well as privileges
0: we have vis-a-vis one another to seek care from one another when we need it. And we're going to go through some of those different points you just mentioned, but I had the haunting feeling reading through the book that I was reading the theology of the body interpreted into a legal and bioethical framework. Is there any truth (laughs) to that? Well, I think there's something
2: to that. Uh, St. Pope John Paul II was a devotee of a, of a kind of philosophical movement called personalism. Um, that is not, the book is not a personalist book, but a lot of the insights overlap for sure. I mean, his understanding of the relationality, the fundamental relationality of human beings is core to his philosophy of personalism. And that comes across in his theology of the body as well.
0: So, Carter, why don't you tell us more about what you mean by natural limits being an important part of an anthropology or a public bioethic? Yeah, I, to an anthropology
2: that takes seriously our embodiment has to take seriously natural limits because human beings, we age, we get injured, uh, we die... We come into the world in a vulnerable and utterly dependent fashion. These are the natural limits that we contend with, and they're not simply accidental. They actually situate us in relationship to one another in a very particular way, and I, I argue dictates what constitutes our flourishing, namely the obligation to give and receive care. Uh, we're at our most human. We're flourishing uh,
0: to the greatest extent when we are taking care of one another. And then you mentioned something I'd not heard before from Alistair McIntyre, but he talks about each of us existing on a scale of disability. Unpack that
2: for us. That's a really important point because... What expressive individualism does, as we discussed last time, is it kind of takes a snapshot that is only true for some very privileged group of folks uh, in the human population, people who have full autonomy, full capacity to, to con- give consent, uh, both in terms of their own interior capacities, but also their circumstances. Uh, that's a point we hope to get to, right, in our, in our lifespan where we're free and we can impose our will on the environment around us. But for the most part, the arc of human diversity development begins with utter dependence upon our parents and gradually builds to hope. We hope an arc of, you know, full something like full agency within the context of, you know, what full agency might mean in a human community. And then a gradual, God willing, gradual decline back to a state of total dependency. Again, it is not the. I mean, every single person walking around has been and will be utterly dependent upon other people. Some people are dependent upon others throughout their entire lives, uh, and we uh, have an obligation to care for those folks. But what Alistair means when he said everyone exists on a scale of disability is everyone is dependent to a greater or lesser extent, and there are times in our lives when we're utterly dependent, and, uh, and that's an inexorable future that we all have.
0: Pope Benedict XVI wrote um, an encyclical called Caritas in Veritate, uh, love and truth and he talks about two principles that i found incredibly moving it sounds like it it corresponds with what you're talking about here he talked about gratuitousness and reciprocity are essential for all human relationships is that part of this it is. I mean, I think that's it's, it's a, a very similar way to talking
2: about what MacIntyre describes and I describe them because of the virtues of acknowledged dependence, which are the virtues of uncalculated giving and graceful receiving. And uh, I think th- those concepts track very nicely with with, uh, with Pope Benedict's comments that you just flagged for us.
0: So uh, what are some of the key new virtues? You mentioned them in passing at the end of the last episode. What are some of the key virtues of embodiment and then I want to see how do we put that into a public bioethics. Yes,
2: that's a great question. So so the aim of of our shared lives together and uh, because it both re- is required for the sake of our survival, we we have to have these to survive and they also teach us what it is that we're supposed to be is constructing these networks of uncalculated giving and graceful receiving. Composed of people who are willing to make the good of another their own good without expecting anything in return and the pristine example of this is our as i said last time we spoke Parents and children right parent takes care of a child not because they have a contract to take care of a child Not because they think that's essential to their own self-expression and self-identity They take care of a child because that's what it means to be a parent a parent uh, a, a child doesn't have to earn the right to be cared for By his or her parents and a parent doesn't simply choose as an option of a menu of multiple options to care for his or her Child now there are different ways to care for a child obviously and if we're talking about Beginning of life issues, which I imagine we'll be talking about in a moment making an adoption plan for a child is a is a beautiful way to care for one's child. It's a brave and beautiful way to care for one's child. But we can, you know, put that to the side. But I like to mention that because adoption is so essential to who we are, as, both as Christians and as Catholics. And it's such an essential part, as St. John Paul himself uh, acknowledged in many, many different uh, uh, lectures and speeches and essays that he wrote on the beauty of adoption as a form of, uh, of building a family. Um, <clears throat> but my point is that what we're—human flourishing is defined by, in my book— um, by constructing and participating in these networks of uncalculated giving and graceful receiving. Human beings require them, again, for their survival. They require them to learn the thing that they're supposed to be, which is the, uh, the kind of person who can make the good of another, his or her own good.
0: Is there any law in any area, whether it's in bioethics or not, that supports a network of uncalculated giving or graceful receiving that we could use as a, a basis?
2: Yeah, that's a great It's a great question. And it's important to say at the outset that the law is a very fine-grained mechanism the law is sim- is not simply a binary yes or no it's not simply f- prohibition or permission it it is a broad spectrum of possibilities of course including at the most restrictive end prohibition criminal prohibition being the most restrictive and then at the opposite end positive inducement by the law namely through something like federal funding for example the subsidizing of behavior to induce certain kinds of constructive behaviors but between those two points there's a massive what fine-grained array of possibilities including uh, making space for private ordering, right? Allowing private individuals and 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 families and churches and nonprofits to construct these networks of giving and receiving that I'm talking about. And of course, you know, one that comes to mind is the Sisters of Life in in New York. Uh, and the laws that facilitate the Sisters of Life uh, practicing, their vocations, taking care of women and families in crisis, uh, the laws that uh, protect their religious freedom, the laws that uh, that that allow people to deduct their donations to the sisters. I mean, it's a it's a dramatic apparatus of law that that allows for that kind of pr- private ordering to take place. But the law can be more direct in its in its private ordering, and there's. There's a law in Louisiana, and I don't know if it's even enforced, but at least, but if it is enforced, (laughs) it's a good one. It says it defines the human being from the moment of conception as a juridical person and requires obligations of care to be extended to children who are conceived by IVF, for example, from the moment that they're conceived in vitro. And they carve out, as they have to, by virtue of the Supreme Court's unjust jurisprudence, exceptions for abortion. But... They, w- once you conceive a human being, that, that's a human being with juridical privileges and protections. Again, I don't know if the state of Louisiana enforces this, but it's a very beautiful hortatory law, uh, yes. whether or not it's enforced. There are other countries around the world that have laws like this in place or that r- regulate assisted reproductive technologies. But, uh, but those are two, two examples. But, I, but the more important point is the law can do a lot to facilitate a lot of different forms of human behavior, whether it's just private order and getting out of the way and letting people take care of each other, or when there's no one who's taking care of the vulnerable to actually step in and take care of them directly.
0: So maybe an example of this would be the recent Supreme Court decision allowing Catholic charities in Philadelphia to still adopt children into the families they think they would do best in.
2: That's exactly right. Allowing institutions like my own institution, the University of Notre Dame, to to both serve our constituents, our students, our you know, faculty, our community in a way that is integrated and allows us to manifest the deepest truths that we affirm and care about.
0: Well, let's spend about 10 minutes on each of those three areas you cover in your book where we could use a, a, a bioethic related to an anthropology of embodiment. First, abortion. How do we see expressive individualization in the individualism in the legal cases you go through, you know, Roe v. Wade? Planned Parenthood versus Casey, Stenberg versus Carhartt, et cetera. Yeah.
2: So uh, as your listeners probably already know, abortion law in the United States is entirely a creature of Supreme Court jurisprudence. It was invented. The so-called right to abortion was invented from whole cloth in 1973 by the U.S. Supreme Court and Roe v. Wade under the highly dubious false proposition that the due process clause of the 14th Amendment, which... Guarantees uh, that the government will not deprive anyone of life, liberty, or property without first, or perhaps shortly thereafter, providing them with due process, Uh, the court read into that prescription, uh, which was adopted in 1868 when abortion was illegal everywhere in the United States. And the, the, the due process clause, along with the other provisions of the 14th Amendment and the 13th Amendment and the 15th Amendment, were adopted to, as best as we could, heal the country from the wickedness of chattel slavery, after, over which we, sought, we fought a, a bloody war, um, to try to restore equal protection under the law to all of our brothers and sisters, including our brothers and sisters of color, who we had abused so disgracefully uh, up until that point. Um, and the court read into that very beautiful and positive language a right to kill an unborn child and undid every law in the country again nobody in 1868 thought that the 14th amendment had anything to do with abortion Uh, in fact as i said law the the law the 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 abortion was illegal everywhere and that didn't change after the 14th amendment was uh, adopted so the supreme court since 1973 has created this 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 false and pernicious right to abortion and if you read the cases that that create that right, Roe v. Wade and then later Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which is the dominant legal precedent governing abortion in America, what you see is a kind of framing of the question of abortion and the solution that the court provides in quotation marks that is clearly grounded in the concept of expressive individualism. First of all, the court invents the right to abortion by, f- first of all, framing the human context as an as a. A relationship of strife between two strangers. It atomizes and isolates the mother and the baby in the womb, describes them as strangers fighting over scarce human resources, namely the body of the mother, focuses on the burdens of an unwanted pregnancy and raising an unwanted child, and says, surely the Constitution must provide a right. To use lethal violence to eliminate the child in the womb, to eliminate these burdens—it's the right that would be appropriate to craft if you're talking about two atomized strangers locked in a zero-sum death struggle over personal property that belongs to one of them, and the other one isn't even recognized as a legal person. Okay, so that's the the beginning is the problem of framing, and then it focuses on the interests of the woman, and this becomes even more dramatic in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, in which the court says the purpose of the right to abortion is to allow a woman to pursue her dreams, to uh, define for herself the mystery of life and the mystery of the universe, and to pursue her truth as she sees fit in a way that is unencumbered by one definition of personhood that the state might try to impose upon her so that she can
0: participate freely and equally in the economic and social life of the nation. I remember exactly where I was sitting on the day that Casey came out in 1992, is like right around July 1st, and I, I, you know, people remember where they were on 9/11. When I heard that, you know, a woman's right to define, you know, the, the mystery of life in the universe, I thought the Supreme Court had lost its mind. Yeah, no, it had, it had, and it
2: and it and it's it continues to to continue and perpetuate that that pernicious lie, which does in no way describes the reality of what human pregnancy. is is and it and it doesn't describe the reality of what women and families in that situation want or need. And so this is my point, right? I mentioned last time we talked that in my book, when I'm talking about the law assuming the anthropology of expressive individualism, I'm not talking about, the assumptions of people. I'm not saying the assumptions of women who seek abortions or people who provide abortions. I'm saying this is what Justice Blackman and his colleagues assumed about human flourishing and then built, invented a right out of whole cloth to try to advance that particular anthropology. So what does an embodied
0: anthropology look like with regard to abortion law?
2: It begins with the reality of the relationship of mother and child. It does not atomize and abstract people from their natural relationships. There is no fair way to describe a human pregnancy that isolates mother and child, right? It is an intertwined, interdependent, relationship like no other relationship that I'm aware of in in the natural life cycle. It is two lives and two fates intertwined inextricably with one another. It is a mother and a child facing uh, a crisis. And here's the difference. If I were to say to you, there are two individuals, one is a person and one is something less than a person, maybe it's some kind of wild animal, and they're fighting over something that belongs to the person that is essential for that person's life, you'd say, here's a right to use deadly force to repel that animal, right? That's what Justice Blackman did in Roe v. Wade, okay? If I were to say to you, there's a mother and a child in a crisis situation that need our help, you and I would drop everything we're doing, all decent people would drop everything they're doing, and they would rush to their aid and try to provide a solution for them that, was, that served everyone's interests. Yes. And it did not allow or authorize the youth of lethal violence of a parent against her own child so by how- a doctor who is charged with healing and not yes. killing.
0: So how do we get there, Carter? You know, this anthropology of embodiment makes sense to our lived experience, but- but how do we get there in law?
2: Step one in the context of abortion is the Supreme Court has to overturn Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey and then create an opportunity for the elected branches of government to care rightly for unborn children and their mothers, there's nothing in the Constitution that forbids that. There's nothing in the Constitution that forbids the recognition of unborn children as persons in the law, and would allow states to act on that insight. There's nothing in our Constitution that forbids that, and to to, to believe that our Constitution forbids us from protecting the weakest, most vulnerable children in the world is to is to say that our regime is corrupt. It's that serious. I'm not trying to be crazy or radical. I'm saying for the Supreme Court to say our founding document, the document that creates our government, forbids us from protecting the weakest and most vulnerable among us, is absurd on its face and has to be rejected. And the good news, as your listeners probably know, the Supreme Court has granted certiorari in a case called Dobbs that is that presents the question very clearly and squarely as to whether or not a modest law, a 15-week ban on abortion in the state of Mississippi, is is constitutional under Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And I'm here to tell you, it's not. Planned Parenthood versus Casey explicitly says, you may not unduly burden a woman's right to abortion prior to viability. This law is a categorical ban on abortion prior to viability. The Supreme Court has two choices. It can continue this unjust and inhumane and absurd line of jurisprudence, or they can overturn all of it and allow Mississippi the freedom to to enact this very modest restriction. There's no middle position. And I'm, I believe that that's what we're going to see approximately one year from now.
0: That would be tremendous. Give it back to the states and then you can start having dialogue about it again. Like every other country in the world. Every country
2: in the world that I'm familiar with, and certainly in, in Europe and in Latin America and all over the world have been allowed to govern themselves on this question of abortion. They have not had that freedom usurped by their court of last resort, and their politics is healthier than our politics. Anybody who's ever watched one minute of a Supreme Court confirmation hearing would have to wonder what is going on in this country, yes. or even thinking about presidential politics and the options that we have and the choices we have to make, uh, or even at the Senate level what is going on
0: in American politics can be laid at the feet of roe v Wade in my opinion is that why we can't have constructive discourse between people who disagree about ideas it's
2: a zero-sum conflict where uh, one party to the question uh, to the issue of abortion has been given an absolute victory in an undemocratic process and the other party basically all, all we can do as pro-lifers is nibble at the edges and you know impose laws like informed consent or waiting periods or or parental involvement, or maybe we can ban one especially grisly form of abortion, partial birth abortion. But the court has never allowed anyone, any elected branch of government, to ban abortion as such at any gestational stage. We're the most extreme abortion regime in the world, and we have no real room to govern ourselves or even have a conversation about it. And the the group, the the abortion rights community who won this ill-gotten total victory Uh, are committed to keeping it and they have a lot of money and it infects our politics and it infects the practice of medicine as you've seen with organizations like the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists which has been completely radicalized at least their leadership not their membership but their leadership has been and uh, we've seen uh, I think our politics has been destroyed by abortion.
0: After that discussion on how an ethic of embodiment would affect abortion we'll be back after the break and start talking about how it would affect Public bioethics related to assisted reproductive technology here on Dr. Doctor. Welcome back as we continue our conversation about how an anthropology of embodiment would affect assisted reproductive technology and the law surrounding it, as well as death and dying. From abortion, let's move on to assisted reproduction and stem cell research. What's been the fruit of expressive individualism? In uh, the public bio- like bioethic, the laws around assisted reproductive technologies. Yeah, so it's an interesting,
2: almost exact photo uh the legal landscape with respect to ART. Uh, in the context of abortion, we're not allowed to make any laws because the Supreme Court has robbed that freedom from us. In the context of assisted reproductive technologies, there almost is no law, right? And the, there's basically, you have the freedom to make a baby by almost any means— that you can think of, and there are interesting, complicated legal reasons and cultural reasons why that's true. Uh, the practice of medicine is correctly largely left to licensure and certification at the front end of the process, and then sort of governed by medical malpractice and the and the and the regulatory authority of of medical boards and and professional societies and accrediting agencies. You know, but but as you well know, being a physician, you have. And a well-earned freedom to be creative and dynamic, so long as you stay within the standard of care. Uh, to to find, including the prescription of off-label uses of drugs and so on, and that's that's a great thing for, for the most part. But ART is different from other forms of medicine. You're a dermatologist. Your your practice, your cures for people, does not involve the creation of another human being. Right. That's not. So so you can immediately see the complexity yeah. of that problem. Well. There's an organization called the American Society for Reproductive Medicine, which is a very powerful professional society, which is really the only player in the legislative space uh, as far as lobbying is concerned, and as far as shaping the law is concerned. And uh, as a result, we have basically no legal restrictions in this area. And as a result of the absence of any guardrails or legal restrictions, we have a, a, a landscape that facilitates a certain kind of freedom that very closely tracks expressive individualism. And I'll tell you a story. There's a guy named Jerry Shatton, who is a physician from the University of Pittsburgh. I think he's since moved on to a different uh, institution, who was a reproductive endocrinologist, and his area of expertise was genetic screening. And we invited him back when I was general counsel to President Bush's Council on Bioethics to come and talk to us about pre-implantation genetic diagnosis and genetic screening. And we gave him six weeks to think about uh, this question. We said, what's the point? What's the purpose of genetic screening in the context of IVF? and he had six weeks to think about it. This is one of the world's most important uh, thinkers at the time, on this, you know, scientists and, and clinicians at the time. And he sat down in front of us, and on more than one iteration in this hour-long conversation we had, he said, the purpose of genetic screening and reproductive medicine is to help parents realize a dr- their dream, their dream of a disease-free legacy. The word child doesn't appear in that sentence, right? That's about the will and design of parents. And then if you combine that with the writings of John Robertson, who's a recently deceased uh, uh, legal scholar from the University of Texas, who was the ethics chair of of the American Society for Reproductive Medicine for many years and was a a permanent fixture on ethics uh, committees, governmental committees and private committees from the 70s onward. He wrote a very influential book in 1994 called Children of Choice that helps us to understand the legal landscape in which he says, Reproductive freedom is essential to self-definition. That's why reproductive freedom is important. That's why there's a right to not be a parent, as we see in the context of abortion, but also to pursue your reproductive dreams Maybe you have a disease-free legacy or, or, or something else entirely uh, through the use of sex selection, genetic screening for non-medical traits. And now we see a situation where there's basically every IVF clinic, almost every IVF clinic offers PGD for sex selection. Um, it's widely practiced. Sometimes they refer to it as family balancing, but we all know what they mean. Um, selectively killing, selectively killing embryonic human beings who don't who are of a disfavored sex, right? That's something that runs so counter to our richest and best traditions in American law and culture, but it's a regular routine practice. Uh, and there are companies that sell batches of embryos which have particular eye colors or they screen for low IQ. Uh, they claim to be able to aggregate genetic data and in 10 years will be able to screen for high IQ. Um, there are egg markets in which... high achieving uh, collegiate women are solicited and offered tens of thousands of dollars for their eggs if they have certain kinds of SAT scores and health histories and athleticism and they look a particular way. Uh, It's commodification. It's commercialization. We have gestational surrogacy where contracting parties demand the abortion of babies in utero who are identified as a disfavored sex or maybe there are too many multiples or maybe the baby has Down syndrome. Um this is this is a this is a landscape in which there are no limits and no guardrails people are not protected from unscrupulous practitioners the likes of which I've just described and they're not protected from their own temptation to which which everybody who's ever dealt with infertility can tell you they feel betrayed by their bodies they feel exhausted they're probably running low on money because all the treatments are so expensive and they're being offered something that is very appealing and they may not have the wherewithal to make a judgment that's in the best interest of their child to be.
0: So what does an anthropology of embodiment look like in this space? It's a
2: framework that takes seriously the reality of parenthood and the reality of what uh, that, that what we're doing in the context of IVF. Uh, well, I'll bracket IVF. In any context where you're treating infertility, what you're doing should keep in mind and in front of you the entire time. What you're doing is you are conceiving a human being who is your patient who is the and whose best interests have to be taken into account throughout the entire process with the end point of being uh, the conception and gestation and birth of a child who is welcomed and loved unconditionally by his or her parents, the anthropology of embodiment and the virtues that I talked about before, the virtues of uncalculated giving and graceful receiving, gratitude is the principal virtue of graceful receiving. And a child is a gift. And the appropriate posture to a gift is gratitude and unconditional love. Leon Cass said a very beautiful thing when we were working for him. He said, a child is a mysterious stranger that one welcomes and loves unconditionally.
0: What would you say to those who say, well, a child is a right? Well, a child is a human
2: being and and to and no one has a right to another human being. What we the, the area of parenthood is the domain of unchosen obligation, not the not the domain of rights and privileges. If you are a parent, your job is to put the interest of your child first and foremost and the cult, and and, and the first thing you have to do is to love that child unconditionally and not not make decisions that try to bend that child's reality to our will. I want a little girl instead of a little boy. I want somebody who doesn't have this genetic mutation. I want someone who's perfectly healthy. I want someone who has blue eyes. I want someone who's got a high IQ. That's not what a parent is. That's not parenthood. That's the antithesis of parenthood. That's rational mastery imposed through technology on another human being. That's subjugation of another human being. That's not being a parent. That's the opposite.
0: Now, how do we understand looking at this new uh, bioethic uh, with eyes, both of us are Catholics and we believe what the Catholic Church teaches and for other reasons related to human dignity, we wouldn't support assisted reproductive technologies like that. But yet we have a law that's already very messy. Yeah. Well, I think the first thing we want to do,
2: first of all, we want to be very courageous and confident in our witness. And we should not be shy about about telling people that we're Catholic and that what that means is intelligible and understandable to those of any faith or no faith. And to and we even you know, we don't you don't have to accept uh, information that emerges from revelation to understand why we have the views that we do on assisted reproductive technologies, right? It has to do with what it means to be a parent. It has to do with rational ma- rejecting rational mastery, embracing unchosen obligations, embracing the unbidden and uh, you know tolerating imperfection, welcoming and loving another human being unconditionally. Those are goods and values that people can em- appreciate and embrace no matter what religion they are,
0: one would hope. What would be the first Practical, concrete legal step that could be taken in this particular area. It's a great question. So I, I alluded
2: to when we last talked uh, the law in Louisiana that recognizes any human being that is conceived as a juridical person with rights and privileges, uh, and which imp- imposes obligations on those of us of due care and protection. Uh, and that applies to embryo, human em- embryonic human beings are conceived. Uh, in vitro, I think that's an interesting example of a law adopted in a secular, pluralistic state yes. of Louisiana uh, that that offers baseline protections for uh, human beings so that they can't be simply destroyed when they don't meet someone else's standards. Right? That's that's one that's one possibility, but there are other possibilities as well. It seems to me, like as I said, the, the law has a lot of fine-grained options available to it one could construct you know a tort regime one could construct positive and the good news about art assist reproduction is that we can do whatever we want in this space there's no roe v wade that prevents us from having a conversation so step one is to have a conversation and to say you know what uh, any 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 time we're trying to grapple with the human tragedy of infertility we should think about what that means we should think about how we should be compassionate and loving and supportive to those who are suffering from infertility but also to understand that that our you know the practice of medicine is 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 about healing and what we should first do is to try to figure out what the pathologies are involved that are preventing the person from being fertile Right I mean they're actually and here again the Catholic Church is ahead of the curve we have the Pope Paul VI Institute in Omaha Nebraska Thomas Hilders and others Who are committed to treating You know reproductive pathologies To right. see you know um, And this is another example of you know the Subjectivity and the definition of health And if I'm a 75 year old woman Who wants to get pregnant that Doesn't mean I'm unhealthy or infertile Just that's just appropriate to that age Cohort right so but in any event, the point is, is that we have to be very mindful of the, of the embodied relational reality of parenthood and children. And once you, once you have an embryo conceived, uh, in a dish, you have a living human being who already is embedded in a relationship of parenthood to somebody, right? And, and so that ha- that should inform how we think about this issue. And, um, and here's the, the most general proposition that we should apply to any of our, Uh, Areas that we're talking about abortion assist reproduction anything how well does our law build up and support and sustain networks of Uncalculated giving and graceful receiving that provide for the needs and protection of every human being That's the measuring stick right so any practice that is Irreconcilable with that good the law should uh, should not tolerate right and so and so working that out is hard right and in the book I don't provide any concrete prescriptions or model statutes or anything like that um, rather the the purposes in high principle and say what the law should do in all of these areas is construct support sustain networks of uncalculated giving and graceful receiving that are mindful of our uh, of our um, embodiment and our relationality to one another and encourage induce support the virtues of uncalculated giving and graceful receiving And if the law does that, then we know we're on the right track, and if the law doesn't do that or the absence of law doesn't do that, then we're on the wrong track and we should
0: rethink it. And this is different from utilitarianism, which talks about the greatest good for the greatest number. We want to give every single person the opportunity to flourish. This is a big difference. That's the common good. That's the difference between
2: the greatest good for the greatest number. Exactly.
0: Exactly. Well, the the final area to look at is uh, end of life, death and dying. How has expressive individualism reared its ugly head here?
2: So what you see, and there are two areas that I take up in the book. One of which is the law concerning end of life decision making for people who no longer have the capacity to make choices for themselves. Uh, discontinuing life-sustaining measures or to, or to forgo life-sustaining measures. And then I also talk about the area of assisted suicide. And the biggest problem with the law in this area, is, as in abortion and assisted reproduction, is it falsely assumes what a person is, is a disembodied will, whose flourishing is to pursue his own authentic truth and to construct his life plans and pursue them without limitation, right? And you're a physician, you know this better than I do, when a person is sick— Last thing they want to do is impose their unencumbered will. (laughs) What they want is you to help them. Oh, big time. Help me is what they're asking. They're not asking for the freedom of the unencumbered self. (laughs) And, And if a person is suffering from dementia or if a person is, 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 is cognitively impaired in some way that they're not able to participate in their own decision making it is a category mistake to try to say what our job should be to help this person express their autonomy and and, and and to follow their autonomy when they're not capable of exercising autonomy, right? What a person who is in that position needs is someone who loves them or who is committed to their care to take care of them in light of their best interests. And so laws that simply privilege remote control decision-making by the reduction of our preferences to a living will or an advanced directive Alone, and I'm not saying those aren't important things. They are important things. But to rely on them solely, as the law seems to want to do, is a kind of uh, corruption and misunderstanding of what people who no longer can make decisions for themselves need. What you, And this is why the President's Council on Bioethics argued for the wider use of durable power of attorney informed by you know, memorialized preferences, but yeah. really, at the end of the day, your job is to take care of the patient, the individual now is, in light of what their needs are, and to love them and to act in their best interest. And nothing could be further from that than the practice of assisted suicide. It's we know that people who have suicidal ideation are overwhelmingly suffering from treatable depression. We know that people who are suffering from, uh, who seek assisted suicide, are are um, themselves feel like burdens to others. They fear losing their autonomy. That's why they want to end their own lives. They're not getting good pain management in the jurisdictions that have legalized assisted suicide. Palliative care and pain management scores are very low compared to those states where assisted suicide is not legalized. And not to mention the fact that in those jurisdictions where assisted suicide is legalized, we now have a downstream population of the disabled, the elderly, and even racial minorities who are already at risk through injustices in the health system, who now are at risk to have fraud, abuse, duress, and mistake in the context of assisted suicide.
0: And uh, I've heard from my friends who deal with patients at the end of life that there's always a deficit of love around those who want to employ physician-assisted suicide. That If there was love, if there was that caring around them, that uh, unbidden obligation to care, they wouldn't want to remove themselves as a, a, quote, burden. Carter, what hopes do you have that parts of this project uh, will see some fruition in your lifetime? Well, I'm an optimist by nature. And
2: I think that when the uh, when, when we are allowed to reason together and to talk to, to each other uh, about these things, uh, as we're, and we haven't been allowed to for almost 50 years by the Supreme Court in the context of abortion, while we, something that we just simply haven't taken up the way we should have in the context of ART, and hopefully we'll be able to continue our conversations about end of life decision-making, we will, we will realize if we take stock on who we are, what we owe to each other, what the appropriate mechanisms that the law should favor are. And I'll say this also, I think, you know, The book is a a set of arguments, right, Uh, informed by data and legal precedents and so on, and I think that's important, and I don't want to undercut the value of my own work, but the most important thing we can do to transform hearts and minds is to care for each other in an unconditional way way. That's what changes hearts and minds. Radical witness, loving each other, caring for each other, especially people that we may not like, especially people that are inconvenient, people that make us uncomfortable, people that we, we, we don't feel, uh, you know, natural attachments to, caring for people the way Mother Teresa cared for people in the slums of Calcutta, uh, you know, making their good our good. That will melt hearts and open minds to be persuaded as the arguments that are you know important to make but at the end of the day the most important thing is prophetic witness in radical self-sacrificing love for one another
0: so it sounds like if we've got someone close to us in our life who disagrees with us on these fundamental questions the best thing is not to discuss these questions but show them that reality in our lives caring for them
2: that's exactly right
0: Carter how can people get a hold of your book so my book is called what it
2: means to be human uh, the case for the body and public bioethics, published by Harvard University Press. Uh, you can just Google it, and you can buy it in Amazon. If there are no copies available on Amazon, you can go directly to Harvard University Press's website and buy directly from them. Um, and uh, and please, by all means, check it out. It's uh, I hope I hope folks enjoy it and they get something out of it. Any final words for our listeners? No, I just think that we I've said it several times now, but I think it's worth saying it even one more time that we are at our most human when we are taking care of one another. And so I urge people not just to take care
0: of themselves, which I hope they'll do, but also to take care of each other. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Carter Sneed, for being with us on Dr. Doctor. Thank you so much, Tom.
1: Welcome back to Dr. Doctor, and welcome to the answer to this week's Medica Trivial Question.
0: So what was the disease that was being studied in the Tuskegee study in which 600 African-American men were left untreated even though they could have been treated and cured that disease was syphilis and for the bonus what was the treatment that was available back then chris
1: we still use it today amazing penicillin yeah it's
0: amazing that syphilis
1: has not become resistant Yeah, it is remarkable. Um, And whenever you hear natural course or natural history, that's exactly what it means. What happens to someone that has a disease if you don't treat it? What's its natural end? Uh, And those were horrible, horrible, immoral experiments that were done.
0: So it was correct that laws were made to prevent something like that happening again. Sadly, the laws made assume that people are are based on who the, what they choose instead of who they are as bodies and souls.
1: And in defense of those who conducted the studies, I don't think, and I, Carter referenced this, I don't think they were animals. Uh, it, it wasn't sort of the Nazi doctors and some of the horrific things that they did. They had convinced themselves that these they weren't harming these subjects. Uh, but in reality, they were, they, 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 were. they were horrifically harming them. But they weren't necessarily monsters doing it. And that's just
0: it. Sometimes the devil makes evil present in people that look very presentable and
1: acceptable
0: because we tend to miss them more anyway the top three takeaways from this episode
1: chris yeah another great episode and thank you so much uh, carter sneed for joining us i think the first one is um and he spoke about this that, that the current laws define the mother baby relationship something that all of us hold so important and sacred as though they were two totally separate entities at sometimes almost antagonistic to one another. Um, And and nothing could be further from the truth, biologically or morally. This needs to be uh, repaired. It's a parent-child relationship. It's not a a zero-sum game relationship, uh, and that needs to be addressed. Amen. Number two. Yeah, recognize that the unborn is a human person. Wow, that doesn't sound that complicated. Even embryonic. Uh, Absolutely. And then we need to act accordingly and appropriately, as you say, even as embryos. We can't discard human people. That means we can't discard human embryos, even if they're frozen in a lab. And
0: Carter gave an example of a state that's done that
1: uh, Louisiana, that's right.
0: Right. It, for embryonic human beings are juridical persons. I had to get the word in there, sorry. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and lastly, uh, the only, cri- I love this, the only criterion for belonging to the community of persons is to actually be a human being. Uh, That's not based on our cognitive ability. It's not based on our physical ability. It's certainly not based on our ability to make choices and decisions. But it's based on the fact that we are, in fact, a human being. That makes us a full-fledged member of the community of persons.
0: What I love about Carter's book, which I did read before the interview, is that while There are some ideas that might sound really philosophical and far away. It's a really simple idea. Remember that we are made of body and soul as a human being and have laws that fit that accordingly.
1: You know, whenever you're talking with someone with a different view than you, I always like the little exercise to say, Let's take your hypothesis to its natural end, yes. and let's take yes. mine, and let's see which natural end we like the most. You know, if Carter Sneed were in charge of the world— um, <laughs> He's not. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, and I gather he wouldn't like to be. Probably. <laughs> but if we, if we carried this idea of the respect for the human person and the laws made accordingly to its natural end— I think our world would be a much better place. Amen. And on that
0: note, we'll thank you again for listening to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. Please share the good news of our show with a friend and invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app.
1: And be sure to rate and review our show. It helps other listeners find us. You can find this and all of our episodes on our website, DoctorDoctor.org. And be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern, And this is Dr. Chris Stroud. We're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line. At 260 436 9598, or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. Tune in for new episodes every Friday and find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org.
0: This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.